Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Ed. Hope you are. I'm doing pretty good. It has been a busy news week, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I'm not sure we've had one quite like this in a long time. It seems that uh, Afghanistan continues to dominate the news and uh, the attempt to rescue Americans and uh, Afghani friends of America from the country. And I think it will for some time to come. Well, that's an interesting point, whether it will for some time to come, because apparently uh, Biden had the opportunity to try to push that deadline beyond August 31st. And his response was, no, he's not changing it. So uh, this is what he had to say about that. We are currently on a pace to finish by August the 31st. The sooner we can finish, the better. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops. The longer we stay, starting with the acute and growing risk of an attack by a terrorist group known as ISIS-K, it's a tenuous situation. We're already had some uh, gunfighting break out. We run a serious risk of it breaking down as time goes on. So what do you think about that? Well, as I understand it, um, the meeting, the teleconference uh, with the leaders of the G7, where they implored him to um, extend the August 31st deadline, and he said no, lasted all of seven minutes. I can't understand why uh, he would um, refuse to do that. I read, as I'm sure you did and, and our listeners, that there was a story that broke last night or this morning that said he was so uh, concerned with a Black Hawk Down situation Bingo. that he, he just would not would not hear of it. Um, and that's my theory for why he he's taking the position that he is. He is so risk averse. Yes. That he yeah. is uh, he's just afraid of the worst that can happen. So uh, why else are we pulling out so precipitously? Why else does he not want to stand up to the Taliban? Because he's worried that those troops are going to come under fire. And you got to respect that to a degree, but that's their mission, if necessary. That's right. It's to fight. And, and, and saving American and allied lives is a good mission. You know, that's not subject to mission creep. It's not nation building. I think there would be support from both left and right, both Democrats and Republicans, from the Europeans, uh, from, from most everybody. Um, if if he were to do that, and yet he seems uh, unwilling to even consider it. Uh, well, as you know, I think we may even have discussed it last week, the House of Commons in the United Kingdom censured him last week, and I heard, I don't know whether it's true, I haven't seen it in writing, but I heard that today uh, Boris Johnson's cabinet said uh, that the, the United Kingdom would, would not support uh, trust the United States again in light of pretty strong words from yes, Great Britain uh, in light of uh, President Biden's promise to them that he would stay the course until they were ready to leave uh, and then his refusal to do so sort of turned on a dime and, and changed his mind and is unwilling to listen it is just unbelievable did you see the two congressmen that went surreptitiously yesterday um, did you see the video that they that they posted uh, on the on social media of just 
hundreds if not thousands of Afghani refugees standing knee-deep in sewer uh, water. Um, yeah, trying I did to, see that. So yeah. It was a remarkable video. And then they were saying today... Uh, the the one the congressman from Massachusetts and I'm not sure, I'm sure I'm gonna butcher his name he's a Democrat is it Moulton or Moulton is M O U L T O N Moulton I think how I've heard it pronounced yeah Moulton uh, and it was one Democrat and one Republican right. who went there both of them strongly supportive of the military both veterans of course both veterans of course Pelosi attacked both of them for going right uh, but it's a bipartisan mission they said they didn't take any seats away from people who needed them coming out of the country yeah. Um, and and Moulton, who was a Marine, uh, put on his Twitter feed uh, this morning um, that w- what he um, wanted to do as a result of this trip was be able to argue for an extension of the August 31st deadline. And that after he got there, saw what he saw, talked with the um, the general officers, brass, whomever may be in charge there, and I'm not sure. And there's only, what do we have, 7,000 people there. That's probably a brigade or a brigade plus, so that's a maybe a one-star slot. I, I don't know who's on the ground and who's in charge. But he talked to whomever, a, a number of them, and was told that th- there's no there's no way to get them out by even September the 11th. It's just not possible. Uh, that's... Uh, that's from a Democrat of the president's own party. And, no, um, I think uh, I think it's fairly obvious at this point. And you have to you have to also factor in time for the military to pull out at the end. That's right. And so, they're going to start and, like today or tomorrow because they have right. to be ready to go by Tuesday. Um, now, the uh, the White House. Uh, here's some interesting audio from a question that came up between Peter Ducey and Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. Go ahead. Thank you, Jen. Is there any concern that maybe trying to reach this deadline and get everybody out, uh, mistakes are being made now that there is a report that at least one of the Afghans evacuated to Qatar uh, has suspected ISIS ties? Well, first, I would say we have a stringent vetting process, which includes uh, background checks before any individual comes to the United States. Uh, So I can't speak to one individual, but I can tell you and and confirm for you that we take the vetting of any individual who comes to the United States and and comes out incredibly seriously. Um, And it's an extensive process. Uh, I would say that this is now on track, Peter, to be the largest airlift in U.S. history. Uh, So and that is a, a bringing American citizens out. It is bringing our Afghan partners out. It is bringing allies out. Uh, so, no, I would not say that is anything but a success. Okay, and I- so she says it's a success. It's a total success. It's the most successful success the White House has ever had at this airlift. Uh, I find it just remarkable that this type of gaslighting is coming on from coming out from the White House. It is truly remarkable. I, I'm trying to think how many airlifts we've had in our history. And I think Berlin Airlift, Saigon, and now this one. <laughs> so the, the bar is not real high. I mean, Berlin Airlift was a remarkable success, but it was different. We were taking goods in, um, you know, tangible uh, goods, food, we, uh, fuel. We were, keeping, we were keeping those Berliners alive who were surrounded by the Soviets. That is exactly right. right. And, um, and it lasted for months. Basically, Stalin closed the highways and thought he would shut West Berlin down and sort of choke off uh, our ability to supply West Berlin and then force us to to give all of Berlin to him. And he forgot to say you can't fly in and 
he probably didn't have the air force or the air capability to stop us even if he had done so but it was just constant dc3s or c47s as the military version was called flying into uh, templehof airport but or uh, airport and, and and maybe others in berlin totally different situation saigon was different. We didn't leave until we got all the Americans out. We got a number of Vietnamese out, not enough probably. Um, the North Vietnamese Army was surrounding Saigon and, and moving expeditiously to uh, conquer it. And, and that was different, or is different. Ford uh, had his difficulties and his problems, and he certainly is uh, not one of our favorite presidents. But he didn't leave anybody behind American-wise. And he never said he was going to. He, he didn't refuse to listen to his advisors. Uh, and he didn't cut and run on our allies, uh, unless you consider cutting and running on South Vietnamese, uh, the South Vietnamese government. But, but I mean, you know, I don't put all that on Ford. I put a lot of that on the Democrat Congress. That was and, and who was in the Democratic Congress? Joe Biden. Joe Biden, who voted to shut off um, aid Funded. to the South Vietnamese. Um, but you're right, and, and he didn't have the the political support in, in, in order to keep uh, to keep the support um, to to the South Vietnamese government. So it's a totally different situation there as well. And I, I just, you know, at some point, and this gets back to it gets back to the Lewinsky situation with Clinton. And I, I think you and I have spoken of this before. But Bill Clinton sent, I mean, he even sent the Secretary of State out in front of the press to say that it wasn't true. Just all his cabinet, you know, everybody, he said, it's not true, go and tell it. And they did for months. And then when they found out that not only, I mean, he lied to them and he told them to go lie to the press and the American people and not a single one resigned. And now, you know, people like Jen Psaki, at what point does this, in her mind, become a question of honor. And she says, I'm not going to say that. It is simply, it is, no one will believe it. I'm not parroting it. I have to sleep at night, look at myself in the mirror, whatever. And I'm not going to say that and quit. Well, first of all, on the, the Clinton Lewinsky issue, I have a theory about how all of today's hyperpartisans partisanship dates back to 1998. Actually, 1992. I can't give it to you now. It would take too long. It would be we'll a, do a special we're, show. We're going to do a special episode next week. Everybody can tune in for that. But, you know, I don't think that the word honor is really applicable because I think there is a religious element in this from the left That's right. uh, because they hated Trump so much. This is like, you know, saving America by keeping Biden in there and propping up whatever he, need, he needs to do. So well, it's it, hard it, for me to see someone actually taking the, quote, honorable, end quote, way out and resigning over something like this. Government is there is the le- re- the religion of the left. That That's part of that equation as well, because um, and, and if you, you know, and, and, and it really gets back to the question of, you know, natural rights. And and if there are if there is no if, if there's no God therefore there's no God given rights then all rights come from government and they're whatever the government says and right and wrong you know that's the next step there's no absolute right and wrong and so there is no honor and whatever the government says in order to uh, accomplish whatever quote worthy goal 
they may have is perfectly fine and acceptable. And so honor is not an issue. And I would just throw out, you know, two quick points on this that uh, first, I'm sure they do view this as a success, but they ignore the fact that they pretty much created this mess in the first place. And so the ability of the military to come in and fly planes in and out and, and grab people and get them out of the country uh, it's kind of a, a bizarre success, especially when a number of the people that they would want to evacuate from the country probably aren't in Kabul and cannot get to Kabul. And so they're not going to have any options. It's a landlocked country. We won't see boat people like we did after the fall of Saigon leaving Vietnam. Uh, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I, I was just going to say, um, I wonder if really deep down all of them think that it is a success. I mean, surely someone. In, in the administration is capable of grasping the fact that it's not. But you may be right. It may be there may be so um, infected with with uh, this notion of, of hatred of Trump and so forth that that that, that no, no one has such a concept. But it's telling. Um, and I think it speaks volumes that the White House, the Pentagon, the State Department, none of them will answer the question, how many Americans have you taken out? They usually duck it, or they just flat out won't answer. Or if they do, they give conflicting answers. And so no one knows of the 80,000 or whatever the number is yet, how many of those are Americans? And I've heard something like 4,000. Well, the BBC yesterday had um, uh, a report that they believed there were a hundred to 150,000 American citizens, British citizens, French citizens, Afghans who had worked for and on behalf of the coalition um, and and their family members that needed and deserved to get out. That's an enormous amount of people. So uh, one, one other point, actually two other points, and one of them may, we may think about for the future. But I, I heard uh, Jennifer Griffin say something yesterday which kind of reframed my thinking about this. And she said that she thought it was a media failure that this had been portrayed or that the American presence in Afghanistan for so long had been portrayed as an endless war. And it should have been more accurately portrayed as 2,000, 2,500 troops uh, protecting an American intelligence outpost and providing logistical support. And, and as you said a couple of weeks ago, no U.S. military KIAs in over a year. Yeah, a year and a half. Yeah, I mean... She's right. That's a that's a great point. So, you know, I, I think that when you look at it from that perspective, that we're keeping the lid on and it really question we can really question a lot of this. So the, the other thing is, and I guess what this remains to be seen, but the 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 language, the tone from the State Department is as if this is a normal change in government in any other country. Mm -hmm. I even heard them say, well, we don't know yet what the conditions are under which we'd recognize the Taliban, recognize the Taliban. But did you see? Are you kidding? Yesterday, um, the the U.N., it was posted on maybe it was one of the U.N. Twitter sites or maybe it was U.N. Watch, which I think is a third party group that um, sort of, for lack of a better word, serves as an independent watchdog on the U.N., but. The speculation is that the United Nations will place the Taliban Afghanistan government on the UN Human Rights Commission. No, I'm sorry, the UN Commission on on the state of the woman. I, I did and, not see and that. I, and that. I thought that's a parody. 
and I look That's and a trick. no, it's, it's not. Be a trick. Um, it, it it's um, apparently it's not. Just happens to be an opening on that commission, and we have a new a new government. Yeah, crazy. And you know, just to to segue into something else, I, I know that Parliament and yesterday had a special session on how to get British citizens out of the country. Well, Congress had a special session and voted to spend two, uh, three and a half trillion dollars, as well as uh, a trillion dollars on infrastructure and uh, other spending amounts, which apparently aren't calculated into that. It's just huge amounts of money. We have a short audio clip here of uh, Pelosi and McCarthy both kind of uh, telling each other what they thought about it. Madam Speaker, as you know, a budget should be a statement, a national budget should be a statement of our national values. What is important to us as a nation should be reflected in our budget. And this will be the case. Democrats called us back for an emergency session, this first session, since Kabul fell to the Taliban. But faced with a national security and credibility crisis in Afghanistan, they have done nothing to plan to address it. And no, it is not a good day. Maybe in your caucus you think it's a great day for you and the Democrats. It is an embarrassing day to America. It's an embarrassing day for this floor. And it's embarrassing that you would even move forward with it. I yield back. So McCarthy says this is an embarrassment, one of the most embarrassing days for the Congress. And it is a tremendous amount of money. Yeah, and but, but I, I think McCarthy is being somewhat maybe even hypocritical given that he allowed Pelosi and the Democrats to have the one point, was it 1.2 million billion dollar infrastructure? Trillion. A trillion, I'm sorry. Uh, you know. Billions. All these, all these, yeah, what difference does it make? Um, you know, what, 10 days, two weeks ago? Uh, and, and, you know, there were people, and we talked about it, um, who said, and here's what's coming next. He didn't, he didn't stop and stand in the doorway and say no. So I, 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 um, I'm not a McCarthy fan. Let's just say it that way. Not that he cares what I think of him. Well, do you think he had the uh, authority or had the votes that he could have actually stopped anything from going forward? I don't know. He may not have, but I think some things, some hills are worth dying on. And I think this was one. And I think he would have helped galvanize uh, the uh, conservative opposition both now and between now and the 2022 midterms, and even during the midterms, galvanize the Republican opposition and say, you know, enough's enough. I, I'm against this. We're not going to stand and, and watch this happen. Um, and, and he didn't do that, and I, I think that was a, a mistake. Um, I, I'm looking here just to backtrack a minute. Sure. Afghanistan took a, its seat on the U.N. Women's Rights Commission, back um, they were it was announced in September so I'm not sure when they did it but there they have the seat now so if the UN recognizes the Taliban regime then they stay on that commission should, should lead to some interesting discussions there yeah. I'm sure yeah so um, sort of and I apologize but circling back to McCarthy I, I, I you know, one you got to hand it to Pelosi and the left. They know how to play hardball. And the Republicans, it seems, with the exception of Donald Trump at times, um, 
we're too quick to say we want you to like us. You know, we're not going to play truly hardball. We're going to fight with one hand tied behind our back. Whatever um, description you like, it's it's time. We need to give them at least as good as they give it to us. And and you know, the American people, in my opinion, clamor for it. That's what make Donald Trump so so. Uh, so popular, you know. For once, I mean, even Reagan wasn't always the best in the world at you know standing up and, and metaphorically giving the Democrats the finger and saying we're coming for you. Um, but Trump did, uh, as evidenced by his comment uh, Saturday night. Um, you know, a little crude, a little vulgar, uh, but it resonates. Well, I would say that the uh, you know one thing that seemed to unite all the anti-Trumpers. Uh, for the last however many years on the Republican side, is that they were mostly made up of people that would rather lose gracefully than fight and try to win. That's exactly anything. right. And, and, you and know, they're swamp rats for the most part who enjoy the Washington scene, who want to stay even if they're not in office. Well, and some of the commentators who I don't know if they're really swamp rats, but they certainly fall into the category of people who don't want to put up a fight. You know, I, I would somewhat disagree with you about Ronald Reagan, because I think he had this capacity to take it back to the public and win things through the public, putting pressure on their representatives. He did. Um, but, you know, one thing about this, uh, this piece of legislation that passed the, the House, this isn't a final bill. Uh, so there's still a lot more that's going to happen with it. But, you know, the the passage followed days of arguing or a purported stalemate between Pelosi and these nine Democrats from swing districts who were saying, no, we want to ensure infrastructure doesn't get stopped by fighting for the three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill. That's right. And And they, they they reached some kind of agreement and ultimately they gave in. And they passed what they actually passed was, I think a resolution or a rule. It was a rule that deemed the, $3.5 $3.5 trillion budget package passed, and it gave cover to those nine plus others who they believe, excuse me, can now say, I didn't vote for that. I voted for the rule, which is semantics, and that's why people hate politicians. The House always deals in some arcane rules. We talked before about the Senate's rules, but the House isn't much better. No. Um, and historically, the rules committee there has been a powerful committee because it did stuff like this. If you if if you have control of the rules committee, there isn't much you can't do. And and Pelosi, give the devil her her due. She's a master at using the rules to do, to accomplish what she wants. So they're trying to remake America with this bill. We're going to see, you know, how it how it. Well, that's a good point. Evolves because if they can get it passed, and I, I noticed uh, yesterday. Uh, Kristen Cinema was hanging hanging tough. If they could get it passed in the Senate, it would remake America. I mean, it's a game changer for any for anyone who thought that Joe Biden was getting elected because oh, it's just good old Joe, and you know he's just a nice guy. He's a good guy, and he he looked in in the the camera and say, "I'm not a socialist. You know me." That's right. Well, he was not as liberal as most, Sanders. This is the most extreme administration ever. It is. It is the most radical presidential administration we have ever had, by far. More so than Roosevelt. And at least he had the excuse, if you will, of 
the Great Depression and having to respond emergently to that. We had good times until Joe shut off the pipeline. Well, and you mentioned the pipeline, you know, just within the last two weeks before this Afghanistan debacle, he was begging OPEC to um, produce more petroleum when we could have been working on a pipeline to bring it straight into America. And they gave him the back of their hand. You know, one other big story continues to be COVID and the uh, Delta variant. Wall Street Journal reported today that instead of an eight-month booster, it'd be a six-month booster. The Pfizer vaccine has now received full FDA approval. So DOD is requiring everyone to take it. A lot of businesses are now requiring all their employees to get it. I saw today that Delta is going to uh, uh, charge their employees $200 a month who are not vaccinated as a, a, I guess you'd call it a supplement on top of their health uh, care cost. Yeah, they mentioned that the average cost for a COVID stay in the hospital was $40,000, and that's how they're justifying that. I uh, And the Johnson Johnson folks announced today that their booster shot uh, would increase antibodies ninefold. But I, I'm, I've read several places recently that part of the problem may be that the vaccines are so potent that people that have the vaccine are, quote, shedding the virus and giving it to other people. To unvaccinated people? Yeah, or or to vaccinated people. I mean, yeah, yeah, but I think it's mainly unvaccinated people. You know, whenever you hear hospitals and -and so-and-so are shut or they're full and so forth, they never say this hospital, you know, the name of it is is closed. It's always, generally speaking. The other thing is the number of cases, new cases, is really um, kind of a red herring. What we really should be talking about is the number of people, the increase in the number of people who with COVID who have been admitted to ICUs and the number of deaths. And they're not putting those figures out. And I think that's telling. Um, and, and that's I, I, my my supposition is it's because those numbers don't justify another shutdown. They don't justify further mask mandates. Um, and like we saw um, you know, yesterday, the governor of Oregon issued a mask mandate for, for people outside. And uh, I don't know if you saw, but uh, of course this weekend, I guess really tomorrow night, college football kicks off and LSU announced that everyone entering Death Valley this season will have to have either um, a vaccine card or a younger than 72 hours negative test. And the NFL, some NFL stadiums are doing it, namely the New Orleans Saints, and you can buy uh, Saints tickets right now for less than a dollar. You know, I think what you said a moment ago about the number of cases, what that points to is the changing metrics. Because uh, throughout this pandemic, it seems like different metrics have been used to judge how bad it was or how successful our efforts at combating it were. Whether it was percentage positive tests, whether it was a number of new cases, whether it was a seven-day rolling average of cases, how many people were in the ICU, how many people were, uh, you know, how many fatalities we had, whatever it was. And it seems like the, the mainstream media and the the you know, administration in Washington, they keep shifting that to find the worst metric that they can use. 
Whereas, like you say, if we can have more new cases, but if, if, if they're minor cases, if people aren't taking up ICU beds and they're not dying, then, you know, to a degree that that's less significant, I think. Um, well, I agree with you. I think it is less significant. I, you know, we started out with two weeks to flatten the curve. And the purpose of flattening the curve was to prevent hospitals, namely ICUs, from being inundated with patients. It wasn't right. to stop people from getting COVID. It was to slow down the rate at which people got infected so that the doctors could handle it. To and keep the hospital capacity from being that, overwhelmed. That's right. And and now we've got just, you know, we're headed towards another shutdown. Australia and New Zealand have shut down. New Zealand shut down and they've had one new case. One. They had one case and shut the whole country down for three week, uh, three days uh, the city where that new case had been, they shut them down for, I believe, six days. Yeah. Um, Australia, read, yeah. they've got they were imposing you know significant fines. You know, they're if people people aren't allowed to basically leave their house unless they're going to the grocery store, and then they can't speak to anybody along the way. In one state in Australia, horrible story at an animal shelter where they basically shot all the puppies there because they didn't want anybody to come in and adopt them. Right. Uh, because that might spread COVID. Just extreme behavior. And I read in the city of Adelaide, three infants have died. They needed life-saving heart surgery that was not available at, uh, in Adelaide. They needed to go to another state. And inter- intra- interstate travel is not allowed in Australia. So these kids died. All right, like you said, originally it was flatten the curve and stop the spread it was develop the vaccine, find a cure. I don't know how many things we're going through before we ever get to the point where we accept that we've just got to deal with this. Yeah. We've got to live with it. That's right. And the whole point for a lot of people to take the vaccine was if you take the vaccine, you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to social distance. You can be around friends and family. You can sort of get on with your life. And now they're saying, oh, you have to have vaccine boosters and all this kind of stuff. And well, I'm not convinced the booster's a bad idea, just in the same way we get an annual flu shot. Maybe the booster's one thing, although I worry what the side effects will be. Right. But back to your point, the idea of getting the vaccine is that you can return to normal. You don't have to wear a mask. You can yeah, be around and, and, people. And I guess what my problem, in addition to what you articulated with the booster, is F- Fauci, and I blame him, he keeps changing the goalposts, you know, in terms of when and what we need to do. And, you know, it was get the vaccine. Once you're fully vaccinated, you don't really have to worry too much about COVID anymore. Uh, you know, take that stress off your plate, so to speak. Uh, and now it's you got to have a booster. You got to have a booster every six months. You know, and, and no one knows. You know, there's uh, I had a law professor who used the phrase always certain, sometimes correct. <laughs> and that seems to be the epitome of Fauci and, and his cohort there. Um, that, you know, I, I think if I think people would be more accepting if they said, you know, we don't know what we're dealing with. Absolutely. We think this is the best thing to do instead of this constant that, lecturing. If he just said that in March of 2020 and maintained that stance and then said when the vaccines came out, we think that you should take the vaccine. We don't know, but we think this is the best thing to do. We hope that it will help. I think people would, I mean, he would be held in such high regard, uh, but he just shoots from the hip, and and when he's wrong, there's no accountability. 
By the way, whatever happened to herd immunity? Don't hear too much about that anymore. No, and and we're to that point. And I saw where the Israelis were maybe eighty percent vaccinated, and and so they should be there. And they're having new cases now. Again, we don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't even know if it's been reported the the number of ICU cases and the number of deaths. Um, but you're right. It, it may be that that not unlike the flu has different versions, if you will, every year. So will COVID. Uh, well, what's on your radar for the next week, Lee? Well, I think the things we talked about: <laughs> uh, Afghanistan, uh, COVID. Uh, college football. Um, I, I keep hoping the Red Sox are going to right the ship. Um, quit wearing the T-shirt because uh, the last two times I wore it, it didn't do us any good. Um, Plenty of season left. Yeah. Um, Chris Sale is back. He pitched well his first outing. I mean, there, there's there's no reason to think that the uh, they can't turn it turn it around and 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 at least make the postseason and. You know, that would be a surprise given what the uh, prognosticators said before the season started, which was they were not going to be very good. That's what I'm, I'm kind of going to uh, keep my eye on this coming week. I'm sure something will change or, or something will happen that, that, that uh, is different. But that's what I'm watching. How about you? Well, two weeks ago we talked about this the, the governor of the state of Oregon signing kind of secretly, or at least not publicly, signing a bill that abolished standards in high school for kids there. And so I've kind of been watching that. There's been a, a fair amount of pushback, mostly from the Republicans in the legislature, although some of the media there is pushback. And I don't know where it's going. Uh, but I, I came across a story as I was looking at that. This is from the East Oregonian, which is a newspaper that kind of covers the eastern part of the state. They're kind of broken by those those mountains there. And it says, and I know as a lawyer, you'll take an interest in this. The Oregon State Bar is considering doing something that no other state has done before, making the unified bar exam optional. The legal class of 2020 were the first group of lawyers who were admitted to the bar without having to take the exam. So, apparently for 2020, because of COVID, they just lifted the bar exam requirements, and anybody that graduated law school in Oregon became a lawyer. Wow. Well, well, now the, the state bar of Oregon is considering, I guess you'd say, a more permanent solution here uh, or some alternative paths to practice, as, as I think they called it, getting rid of the bar exam. Uh, requiring you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred hours working with someone else, but it's not clear to me that that would be in lieu of law school, or if you'd have to go to law school and then work fifteen hundred hours for somebody else to be to be admitted to practice law. I just find it interesting. Oregon's abolished standards to graduate high school. Um, I don't know where they stand on free community college. Um, but now they're talking about, you know, let's let lawyers become or law students become lawyers without any type of objective testing before they get admitted to practice. Yeah. You know, I, I, I guess my knee jerk is I, I don't know that with the right training regimen, almost like doctors and a, um, a residency, it might not be better than the bar exam. I've, I've known people didn't pass the bar exam the first or second time and sometimes you wonder 
how could that be? And then you see people that passed it and you think, how could that be? Uh, and, and I do think that the public, you know, the model that we have as lawyers in our, in our training is, is sort of the old notion that a lawyer is a generalist and can do, you know, a will in the morning and a, uh, or a, a, a court case in the morning and a will in the afternoon and a deed, you know, uh, at lunch, that kind of thing. And, and I think those days are pretty much over. Um, and whether that's good or bad for the profession, I think it's where we are. And, and, you know, the scary thing about lawyer is, you know, when you get that license in your hand in August or March as a result of the bar exam, it's open field. You can go as long as you have a client. <laughs> and, and that's a little scary. So, you know, I, I think under the right, uh, the right situation, perhaps uh, sort of a, a, a fifteen hundred hour training requirement in lieu of the bar exam might might be a good thing. It might be. It maybe eliminate a year of law school and spend fifteen hundred hours working in a law office. See, I would I would add a year, and 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 require it to be working in a in a in a law office. Yeah, I'm not at all convinced that law school is needs to be three years. Well, yeah, okay. Do two years and and then have a the third year be in in a law office. But I agree with you. I, you know, I think that third year of law school is painful. Yeah. You, you're sort of doing the same thing that you did the second year. The first year is all about learning how to be how to think like a lawyer, and then the second year you sort of jump in, and the third year you just bide your time, prepare your bar application. Well, my third year was in the clinical program, and I loved it. And uh, I actually learned how to practice law a little bit then. So, yeah. well, that's the um, thing. Everybody you know, doesn't get that experience. You have that's right, and um, you have the third year practice rule, which has been expanded, and I think it's a good thing. Um, At least in North Carolina, third year law students under the supervision of a licensed attorney can practice law in certain courtrooms. Right. That's what the, the third year practice in, rule is. Yeah, they can try misdemeanors in district court. From a criminal standpoint, I'm not sure about the civil end of it, um, but I, I think that's a good a good thing, um, and and so I, I don't know I'm I'm intrigued. Well, I'll let you know. We'll follow will up. You, on will this. you fire me you if did. I say that if I uh, you know in six months I say wow Oregon got it right? Uh, you know I'd be surprised, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> hey, you know, stopped clock is right twice a a, a day. You're right. They say or something like You're that. Right. So. So maybe Oregon will get something right. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review.